Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. If you're new to the important disagreements between Catholics and Protestants, then you might think this teaching doesn't matter. You couldn't be more wrong. This stuff matters a lot. If you've ever debated Catholicism, then you know that in every issue where Catholicism differs from the Bible, the debate will eventually come down to the central issue of the authority claims of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's what this episode is about. If we have a good reason to reject the authority claims of the Roman Catholic Church, then we have no reason to embrace the extra-biblical teachings it has on stuff like purgatory, the papacy, indulgences, the priesthood, Mary, or the sacraments. What you're about to hear is part two of a four-part series on refuting Catholicism. Each part is very important, and I believe thoroughly and effectively refutes Catholicism. I submit this to you in love and grace. This is meant to outreach to Catholics, not to attack them. Let's get started. Tonight, we're going to refute Roman Catholic claims to have supreme authority over all believers in Jesus. Um, And we're going to refute claims that the papacy and the Roman Catholic Church carry the authority of Jesus Christ on earth. And um, it's interesting, is if somebody came up to the Catholic Church, not Catholics, but the church, and said, who do you think you are, Jesus? The Pope could turn and respond, well, (laughs) because his title, the vicar of Christ or the representative of Jesus, and and this doesn't mean like the way you represent Christ, we all represent Christ in some sense, it means supremely and ultimately the representation of Jesus on earth. That's the Pope. And so with the authority that comes with that is, is immense um, in Catholic claims. But before I jump into that, let me start with where we agree, because I promised I would do this. But it'll be brief, not because I want to devalue where we agree, but why are, there's no point in discussing what we agree on. We agree. <laughs> discussing differences, we get a lot more accomplished. And so we, we agree with Catholics um, and the Catholic theology on several important issues. Moral issues, we agree on moral issues. We're pro-life, pro-marriage, pro-family values. This is pretty consistent. Even though the majority of Catholics in the United States are not pro-life, the Roman Catholic Church is pro-life, extremely so, very pro-life. And um, and on that, we, we stand hand in hand. Pro-marriage, even though many Catholics are not pro-marriage, they're, they're pro-same-sex marriage and things like this, but the Catholic Church we stand hand in hand with. And just generally speaking, pro-family values. So we can stand hand-in-hand hand and work together to promote sort of good um, good political maneuvering, you know? And we can, we can work together and say, go pick it at an abortion clinic together, hand-in-hand hand with, with Catholics. That's great. There's also who, who Jesus is. Now, this is extremely important. The identity of Jesus, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that is, he rose bodily from the grave and he ascended into heaven and he's returning in glory to judge the world, we share this in common with Roman Catholic theology. Absolutely, there's no disagreement there. Now that's um, unlike, say, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that, they get the identity of Jesus radically wrong. I mean, they've got a completely unprovably unbiblical view, but that's for another, for another time. Um, the identity of not, not only Jesus, but of God as a trinity. That there's one God who exists eternally in three distinct but co-equal persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a, a Catholic theolo- theological position as well as a, a biblical Christian view as well. It's, it's both the same. This sets Catholicism apart from cults like uh, what, well, what I would call cult. The, the, the use of the term cult in Christian theology is not the same as the dictionary definition of it, but I would say it sets them apart from that. Another one is respect for the Bible. There's huge respect for the Bible in Catholicism. I mean, massive respect. I have a Catholic friend who says, a former Catholic friend, who says that before he was Catholic, or before he was uh, saved, what he would do is he would have his Bible and he respected it enough to dust it off, pick it up, kiss it, and then put it back down. There is a a massive amount of respect for the Bible, so we shouldn't knock it as though they're just chucking the Bible out the door. That's not the Catholic theological position. They think that the Old and New Testaments are the inspired and infallible word of God. So this is huge. We have major areas of agreement, and this is wonderful Unfortunately, we also disagree on some very, very big stuff as well. There are hugely important and absolutely essential areas of disagreement between Catholicism and biblical Christianity. So I'm going to give you kind of a list of a few of those things. Um, They're too important to ignore. 
I mean, some people, they want to stop after mentioning the areas of agreement. Okay, hey, look at all the stuff we agree on. Let's, let's just go away. But this, this doesn't really work because, like Jesus said, how can two walk together unless they are agreed? And we need to be in agreement on these essential issues or we can't pretend like we're walking together because we're not. We're, we're just ignoring these differences. So I'm going to boil it down to basically two areas where we disagree with the Catholic Church. I try to simplify it. And the first is the authority of the Catholic hierarchy. We totally disagree on this. The idea that Roman, the Roman Pope, the Pope who is in Rome, the Bishop of Rome, and the other bishops that are in communion with him and the priests and all, all, the, all the, the stuff that comes alongside with that. Because once you embrace the papacy or the Pope, you get a whole bunch of other stuff, whether you like it or not. It's just sort of logically comes alongside, like the 21 ecumenical councils, the 21 church councils. Um, most, the most recent one was actually in 1965. They consider these things, these traditions, to be infallible as well. This is just like the Bible. It's just like the Bible. And so that the authority of the Catholic hierarchy, we're going to deal with that one today. The second thing is the unbiblical teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. We'll deal with that starting hopefully next week, if, if, assuming that I can get there in time. <laughs> we'll see. Um, and that would be justification. That's the gospel. Like, how are we saved? There is a very different view on Catholicism for how you get to heaven. Um, there's see, Now, it just, you know, it's not just summary-wise. It's not as though the Catholic teaching is you get saved by works, and then the biblical Christian view is you get saved by grace. This is not it. The Catholic view is you get saved by works and grace. In fact, almost nobody says you get saved just by grace or works alone apart from grace. No, nobody says that. Pretty much every heretical or unbiblical teaching is going to have some, um, some sort of amalgam of works and grace. And that's what the Catholic Church has for justification. So it's not the necessity of grace. They all think we need grace. It's the sufficiency of grace. That's the issue with the Catholic Church. Is grace enough? Is grace enough? Like the worship song we sing, your grace is enough. That would not be a Catholic theology position <laughs> in any way, shape, or form. We also disagree not only on how you get saved, but where you go when you die. Um, the Catholic teaching on purgatory, we'll get there, we'll talk about that. Um, indulgences, and you might say, wait, the Catholic Church did away with indulgences, Mike. No, they have not, actually. That's not Catholic theology. They have not done away with indulgences. We'll get into that. Um, the view of the Bible. So we believe the Bible is in the infallible, inspired, inspired, inerrant word of God. We agree. What we don't agree on is which books belong in the Bible. And it was about the 1500s in response to the Reformation that the Catholic Church added books to the, to the canon or to the list of inspired books of the Bible. And they just added some new books, all in the Old Testament. And, um, and we'll get to that when the time comes. And also Mariology, beliefs about Mary, like the bodily assumption of Mary, um, the perpetual virginity of Mary, things like that. And also the, uh, the, the papacy and Roman authority, that stuff is lumped in with the first category. Now this can easily get way too complicated. So I'm going to try to be careful to not overwhelm you. Catholicism is extremely complicated. If you've ever been to the official Vatican website, you can see immediately how you have no idea what's going on. It loads in Latin. 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 No website I go to on the world loads in Latin, but the official Vatican website loads in Latin. If they look for the spot where it translates it into English for you, you finally find it, you go to English, and you still can't read it. Because it has all these terms. Catholicism has a, its own unique vocabulary. Words like magisterium, sanctifying grace. That's a, an official, important term. Mortal and venial sins. Mass, the Eucharist, transubstantiation. Um, the bishops in fellowship with the papacy, with the Pope in Rome, and, and like there's tons of words that when you start to listen to Catholic theologians, you're just like, I need a translator for this stuff. So I'm going to avoid as much of that as I can. The, the Catholicism is not just complicated because it's a unique vocabulary, but it's complicated because they have so much theology. You have your 66 books of the Bible. That's a lot of theology. But on top of that, they have various statements from popes throughout the centuries, which it's sometimes it's really difficult to tell which ones of those are supposed to count and which ones are not. It depends on which Catholics you talk to and which theologians you talk to. They don't agree. Then you've got 21 different councils. And these councils sometimes last years and come out with massive amounts of content that it's just, it would be, you would have to have a full-time job as a Catholic theologian just to read all this stuff. Many Catholics do not know Catholicism. 
that is actually their saving grace. Because of this, they may very well be saved because they believe what they've read in the Bible. They believe those scriptures that they've heard. Um, they may very well be saved. Hopefully they are. But if they really understood all of Catholicism and embraced all of it, I don't think that they would be saved because of the theology. So we'll get there. But it ultimately comes down to just two issues. One, as I said, their claim to authority, and two, their extra-biblical and unbiblical teachings. Um, the claim to authority we're going to tackle first because that is the foundation for believing all their extra-biblical and unbiblical teachings. If we dismantle this claim to have authority over the Bible, authority over tradition, authority over doctrine, then we can just look at their look at their other teachings and compare it to scripture and just decide if it's biblical or not. But if we go with the teachings first, then we're constantly batting against this idea that, oh, but we have the authority. So we're going to deal with authority first. So what does Rome teach about Rome's authority? That's the question. Um, I'm going to be quoting some councils. I'll try to limit it for your sakes. Um, and I should take a moment to explain why. The Roman Catholic position on these 21 councils is that they have authority equal to the Bible. That's huge. And to a, 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 someone who was not raised in the Catholic Church, that's like, huh? It sounds a little strange. But this is official Catholic teaching. These councils I'll be quoting are not just opinions of individual Catholics. This is official Catholic doctrine. This is what they teach is infallible, cannot be mistaken. Trent, the council that happened in the city of Trent, was one of the most... Um, clear councils that they've had where they come out with these really clear specific doctrines like this this means this and this is this and you're this and if you're not you're anathema you're, you're going to hell some people say that Trent is outdated this was in 1546 it happened as a response to the Reformation tons of people left the church so they had a big council to establish here's what we believe here's what we teach and if you're not then you're you're a heretic and you're out of here and it was very um, combative the way it came out some people think, oh, Trent's outdated. That's not really the Catholic position anymore. That's not true. Trent, the Council of Trent I'll be quoting from, is, is Catholic theology. This is infallible according to the Roman Catholic Church, and a, an individual Catholic may not think it's important, good for them, but that's not the position of the Church. The two most recent councils, Vatican I and Vatican II, the most recent one happening just 50 years ago, both of them reaffirm what Trent said. As infallible. So clearly, this is infallible. So let me read to you here. What does the Council of Trent say about the authority of Rome? Here's their claims. Furthermore, to check unbridled spirits, it decrees that no one relying on his own judgment shall, in matters of faith and morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, distorting the Holy Scriptures in accordance with his own conceptions, presume to interpret them contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, to whom it belongs to judge of their true sense and interpretation, has held and holds. Or even contrary to the unanimous teaching of the fathers, even though such interpretation should never at any time be published, meaning you can't even just have it privately, you, you, you can't even publish it to others, don't even have this opinion. Those who act contrary to this shall be made known by the ordinaries and punished in accordance with the penalties prescribed by the law. So if I can say, just kind of summarize what I just read to you, to check unbridled spirits, to stop individuals who are coming up with new theology, basically, nobody will presume that they can interpret the Bible different than how Holy Mother Church has. They'll be, they'll be made known and punished. Holy Mother Church is the one to whom, I'll quote, it belongs to judge of their, the scriptures, true sense and interpretation. The church decides what the Bible means, and you are not allowed to argue with it. That's the Roman Catholic position. Now, when we say church, I don't mean in the Christian, biblical Christian sense, the whole body of Jesus Christ, all the people who love Jesus. Church means the official leadership in Rome. That's what that means in this context. Vatican II, the most recent council, Go back only 50 years ago. In 1965, they said this. But the task of authentically interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. The living teaching office would be those, those men that, 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 under the authority of the pope, come up with interpretations and say this is what it means. Exclusively. I am practicing foolishness here when I read the Bible to you and tell you what I think it means. 
when you read it on your own and try to figure out what you think it means. That is utter folly because only the church can tell you what it means. Whose authority, speaking of the church, the living teaching office, whose authority is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with the divine commission and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It draws from this one deposit of faith everything that it presents for belief as divinely revealed. So, not only are we the only ones that are allowed to interpret it, but our interpretations are divinely revealed. They're from God. So you understand that's a pretty bold claim. So I'm not putting something on them. This is their, they're putting their foot in the, in the ground, dropping their, their gavel down or whatever, what, what's the gauntlet. <laughs> they're dropping the gauntlet down saying, you need to listen to our interpretations. They're the only ones that count. As I read on, Vatican II said this, it is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church in accord with God's most wise design are so linked and joined together that one can not stand without the others. And that all together and each in its own way under the action of the one Holy Spirit contributes effectively to the salvation of souls. So they're here claiming not only that they're the only ones who can interpret the Bible for us, but also they're the only ones who um, can interpret scripture and the only ones, basically, the only source of clear teaching is from them, is from the Roman Vatican authority. That's a really strong claim. They also claim that tradition, along with scripture, is equal in authority to the Bible. So tra later traditions, equal in authority to the Bible. I'll read this to you from Vatican II. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of devotion and reverence. So we could replace the song we sang today, in your word I place my trust, in your word I rest, to in your tradition I place my trust, and in your traditions I rest. It's the same devotion, the same you know, appreciation and honoring that goes to tradition as there is to the Bible. So it goes on then after this to elevate um, whichever people happened to be alive in the Roman Catholic leadership as the final authority on scripture or tradition and what they actually mean. So this is kind of, well, let me read on. I'm not going to read councils for too much longer, so bear with me. See if you can follow. The, the language is a little bit hard to follow, I admit, but I want, I want to read it in their words. They say this, this tradition, which comes from the apostles, develops in the church with the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, no one's ever claimed that the Bible is developing. But the claim here is that not the scriptures, but what they call sacred tradition, is developing in the church. It develops. It's an ongoing process. So they're, they're now here paving the way to say, not only can we interpret the Bible correctly and we interpret tradition, but tradition is also in a process of development in the church. Um, this could only refer to altering Christian beliefs um, through certain teachings that will come out in the present or future from the Roman Catholic Church, which has happened a lot. Okay, let me quote one more, last one, from Vatican II. It says, Sacred tradition and sacred scripture form one sacred deposit of the word of God. So now they're taking the term the word of God and applying it to tradition. Which is committed to the church, the task of authentically interpreting the word of God, which would be scripture and tradition, whether written or handed on, has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. Now this is really important. Really, really important. They claim total unimpeachable authority over all Christian belief. But the Bible doesn't say that, church. It doesn't matter what you think the Bible says. We're the only ones that are allowed to interpret it. This is why I, had a I used to have conversations with my buddy, Tony. We're still friends. He's Catholic, and we would talk about these issues and stuff. And I said, one, I said to him one time, Tony, since only the church can tell you what the Bible means, why are you arguing with me about what the Bible means? You'd be better off not even reading the Bible and just reading things that come out from the church, what the church says. And Tony's response to me was really telling. He went, yeah, you're right. Because it is rational. It's like, why read the Bible? I might just get confused and come up with the wrong interpretations. I may as well just go to the church and, and look at them for the answers. And that is kind of the goal. Only the church can interpret the Bible. Only the church can say what Christians should believe. And only the church can introduce 
new doctrine or or they might say develop doctrine and teaching and beliefs as we go. This is actually more bold than you might realize. This claim is that there are, there are three things, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, and they're working together, right? But sacred tradition, that term, only means those traditions the teaching authority of the church endorses because they don't endorse all tradition. They don't endorse every early church father writing. They don't endorse all of it. They just endorse certain ones they select. So they control which ones they select. Sacred scripture isn't really much of an authority when you think about it because it can only mean what the teaching of the authority what the teaching authority of the church says it means. So it doesn't mean that. But it says here that it was saved by grace alone through faith. No, it doesn't mean that. So the, so, the, uh, so the scripture loses its authority. Really, this doctrine is that the church alone, is the, the, the Roman Catholic church alone, and their teaching authority, the pope and the bishops in communion with him, in other words, the bishops who agree with him, are now the authority, period. And if things change, or that's fine. They're allowed to do that. And if you think the Bible says something else, then, that, then that's irrelevant. And if you think that that, that tradition is not valid or this one should be, then that's irrelevant. Some people find this offensive. I, I do. To other people, it's attractive because they're thinking like, I don't have to worry about this stuff. I just trust Rome. Just trust Rome. Whatever Rome says, man. You know, is the Bible God's word? Is the, is the gospel really true? How do I get saved? How do I deal with skeptical questions? Am I bothered because I can't find some of these things in the scriptures that the church... Just trust Rome. Trust Rome. Rome has the authority, not the Bible. It's certainly attractive to some people, but is it true? Not by a long shot. Not even remotely. I'll put it, I mean, I'll put it on the line. If the Bible supported Rome, I would be Catholic. I'm going to follow the scripture where it leads. It's not like I'm Protestant and I have to fix, find a way to prove that I'm right. I'll go where it leads. I don't have a problem with that. I could be wrong, but I'm certainly not insincere. To be accused me of being insincere would be insincere. So the Roman Catholic Church claims that it's subject to the scriptures. Even in response to this, they kind of built in their claim right there. I read it to you where they're like, oh, but we faithfully expound it and we're actually subject to the word of God. We're the servant of the word of God. But yet... You're the one who declares what the word of God means. I'll put it this way. Let's say that back in the room, I've got Pastor Gary, the senior pastor of our church. And then Pastor Gary comes out here and he says, hey guys, I want you all to go out and get some donuts. And then I say, you guys, okay, go back to the room, Pastor Gary. I know you guys think he said he, you want, he wants you to go get donuts, but I, I'm the only one that's really allowed to interpret Pastor Gary. I'm the servant of Pastor Gary. I'm, only, I'm the only one that can interpret him. And I'm telling you, when he said go get donuts, what he really meant was you have to open the Bible and look through the hole and the lens of, of, of the sweet and you know, tasty, like, you know, eaty theology that people want to have. And you have to see past that to see the real deep theology. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter. You know, and I, could, I mean, I could just spin it to mean anything I want because now who's the real authority? It's me, not him. If I don't let him speak to you directly, he's no longer the authority. It's me. And that's the same thing with the Catholic Church. You can hold them to the scripture, but they will simply say, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It means what we think it means, and therefore it agrees with us. This is the same, interesting, as JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons, and almost every weird radical religious group out there, they, can, they claim that they're the only ones that can really interpret the Bible. The Watchtower Organization says this. Only we can interpret the Bible for you. You guys can't interpret it. Um, the Mormon Church claims this. Only we can interpret the Bible, so your interpretations just don't count. So rather than argue about what does it really say, the argument is over before it starts because only we can do it. So the immediate problem here is this is circular reasoning. This is just flat-out, unfounded circular reasoning. Rome says, we alone can interpret and teach the Bible. And you ask Rome, how did you get this authority? And Rome says, the Bible gave us that authority. And you say, but I don't see that in the Bible. Where is it? And they say, we know the Bible gave us that authority because we interpret it that way, and we alone can interpret and teach the Bible. That's it. That's it. And you might be like, Mike, you're being trite. Surely Rome gives a better case for their authority than that. No, they don't. It's just an authority claim. And I'll, I'll get into the details here. So, just imagine if you would, you're, you're, you go, you're, you're, you're called into a jury situation and it's a murder trial. And the man on trial for murder, he's the one accused of murder. And he's sitting there, you know, 
being charged and accused and whatnot. But then his, his team calls an expert witness who's an expert in forensics to prove that he wasn't really the murderer. You're surprised, though, because it's the murder, the murder suspect that gets up and gets in the stand as the expert witness. That's a sham. That's not a trial. And he says, yes, I use my expertise to tell you that I did not commit the crime. Yeah, but why should I trust you? You're too biased. You're too biased. Show me outside of you where this is. Even Jesus did this. He was like, don't just believe me because of the works. Look at the testimony of the scriptures leading up to me. Like there's outside witness of my authority. So something's wrong. Something's wrong. So according to the Roman Catholic Church, um, only they can interpret the Bible. But here's a question. Why is it then that there are literally only six or seven passages of the entire Bible that the Roman Catholic Church has interpreted? Ever. I know this, this is shocking. All I do is interpret the Bible. That's all I, I teach the Bible every week. If I had the only authority on earth to interpret the Bible, I'd make it my mission to plow through Genesis to Revelation and give accurate interpretations of every single verse. But they've only interpreted six or seven passages ever. What a lousy job they're doing. What an abandonment of their responsibility to interpret the Bible that they say they have. If you are the only one that can interpret the Bible and you don't do it for 2,000 years, you should be fired and replaced with somebody else who will do the job. Why do they not interpret the Bible? I don't know. I'm not going to guess as the reasons, but I'll say this. It's convenient because you can't hold them to any interpretations of most passages. So you can't say, hey, see, that interpretation is wrong. That interpretation is wrong. So there's just, there's just no statements there. As well as because while giving lip service to the Bible, there's not a lot of actual use of the scriptures for a lot of the extra-biblical stuff that they have. This means that Roman Catholic apologists and teachers can rarely say with conviction what the Bible means because they can't interpret it and the church hasn't done it. So it's just a big mystery. So the Bible's a big mystery to a lot of Roman, Roman Catholics because of it. It's always conjecture and opinion. This is why they often settle for, well, it could mean this and it could mean that and it could mean this and it could mean that and then they just kind of walk away and as long as one of those could means supports Catholic theology then they feel they've done their job. This is essentially the same as a lot of cults, and it's really unfortunate. So it's circular reasoning, and it's totally assumed and not proven, but that's not the only problem with Roman authority and the way they defend it. One of the problems is that Roman Catholic authority evolves, and the teachings of the church have changed over time. It's not a consistent theology from year to year to year. It has changed over time. This is why after uh, Vatican I, when they came out with new claims about papal authority that hadn't been put in, in like codified in a council before, a lot of Roman Catholic theologians left the church. So then they say, well, I'm pre-Vatican. I'm a pre-Vatican Roman Catholic. Oh, I'm a Vatican I Catholic. I'm a Vatican II Catholic. I mean, they'll actually use these de descriptions because new stuff comes out. Only a long time after the apostles did anything like the papacy appear. The Roman Catholicism of today is very different than Roman Catholicism of the 11th century or the 7th century or the 3rd century. It's very, very different. It's totally changed. The bishops of Rome from 300 AD would not recognize modern Roman Catholicism as being the same thing as what they had. For instance, purgatory, the bodily assumption of Mary, or even the doctrines about the authority of the papacy over everybody else. Like They wouldn't even recognize these things. They'd be like, wait, I have authority over the whole church? I mean, the Bishop of Rome would be surprised at this claim. So that's one issue. <laughs> but the other issue is this. They cannot back these claims up with the Bible. So let's, uh, let's take it from where we agree to where we disagree. We all agree that the Bible is the word of God, right? You and your Roman Catholic, so I'm not going to try to defend the Bible as the word of God. We'll do that some other day. But where do we disagree? Roman Catholicism says that the Roman Catholic Church is an additional source and the only proper interpreter of the Bible. And these are two claims that have to be tested. One, that they are a source for new doctrines, the developing traditions. And two, that they're the only ones who can tell us what the Bible and doctrine is. They need to do a few things to show that they have this authority. One, they have to show the Bible's not enough. Like, why, why do I need you? That would be my question. Why do I need you? Isn't the Bible enough? Um, number two, to show that the Roman Catholic tradition is needed, that maybe, okay, let's suppose the Bible's not enough, but why do we need you? <laughs> why, why isn't the Holy Spirit a good enough 
supporter for any lack that might be there. Um, number three, they have to show that they're the only valid source for understanding these things, that they alone can interpret the Bible. So let's examine these things. Um, one of the ways they support the idea that the Bible's not enough is by saying, um, well, that the Bible's not enough. <laughs> That's pretty much the number one mantra that comes out of the Roman Catholic theology. The Bible alone is not enough. The Bible alone is not enough. Um, and here is a scripture that you'll hear talked about. So if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says here, you're familiar with the passage, I'm sure. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now I've heard the Roman Catholic response to this, and they've only dealt with verse 16 in the, in the Roman Catholic theologian that I read on this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. They go, we agree. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. And they go, we agree. But that doesn't mean that it's enough for all those things. That it's sufficient that you don't need anything else. But read verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The effect of the word of God is a complete or mature or full-grown man of God thoroughly equipped, right? I'm fully equipped. I am sufficiently equipped for every good work that God would have me do. Is this not a claim in the Bible for the sufficiency of the scriptures? Absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds sufficient to me. So that would be my scripture to use. Hey, look here. And the Roman Catholic theological response is to ignore verse 17 and talk about verse 16, which is, I think, a really reckless use of the Bible. What verse do they use to support, though, that the Bible's not enough? So if, if I was a Roman Catholic theologian, what scripture would I use? Well, they throw at you John 21, 25. Well, let's flip over there. To somebody who doesn't assume the Catholic Church is already correct, this is the verse that's used, and I have to say it's, 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 a, it's not impressive. John 21, 25, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Here is what Roman Catholic apologist Carl Keating says. The Bible actually denies that it is the complete rule of faith. John tells us that not everything concerning Christ's work is in Scripture. What? Are we to assume that if we don't know like what Jesus ate that day or this other thing that Jesus said that we're therefore incomplete in the equipping we have to serve the Lord? Do I need to know everything that Jesus said in order to serve Jesus? I don't think so. But this mistakes our view that the Bible is sufficient for like a perspective that says like the Bible has all knowledge. Look, I don't think I'm going to open like the book of Proverbs and learn how to like replace the transmission in my car. I just think I'm going to learn everything I need to follow Jesus. That's the thing. So it's sufficient. Does this mean scripture is incomplete? No. We don't need all knowledge. We just need God to say, here's what you need. This is a common bad Bible study technique. To take a verse that says something like, see, there's things that aren't in the Bible, and conclude, therefore, you need Roman Catholic traditions. It's just like a complete leap. Like, you would never read this and think that. It's just... It's bonkers. I don't know what else to say. Number two, okay, they have to show that they fail to show the Bible's not enough. Um, the Bible says it's enough. And then verse, verse two, the second thing here. They have to show that Roman Catholic tradition is needed. What if just the indwelling of the Holy Spirit could supply anything that I might lack in just reading the Bible? I mean, if it, if it wasn't sufficient, why would I go to the Roman Catholic Church? Why does it need to be Rome, even? Why can't it be, why isn't the Mormon Church what I need? Why isn't a local church what I need? Why is it them? But here's the most commonly cited verse to support tradition. Here it is. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I admit when I first heard this verse quoted, I was thrown back because the word tradition was used, although I was much younger in my walk, had not read the book myself. And that's kind of what I think people are counting on. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, it says, Therefore, brethren, Stand fast 
and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. The first thing you notice is that this only applies to the things taught by Paul and his company. Paul and the people with him who taught the things Paul taught. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. It's possessive about the things that Paul has, has taught them. That's specifically what it's about. They're also told to stand fast and hold. The, the point there is it's to keep them from embracing anything different from what they were already taught. It's like, don't, don't let anyone teach you anything else. Just hold on to what I've already given you. And the word tradition here does not mean Roman Catholic Church tradition. It actually means the things that Paul said, either what he wrote or what he said to them. He's saying traditions, which were what? Written. He's including the actual epistles as in this term tradition here. So he's not using it the way the Catholic Church uses tradition. You have scripture over here, tradition over there. And it's only the things that Paul said. So this tradition, it doesn't mean anything other than just what Paul has already taught them. And the exhortation is don't go away from this. And the later traditions about like the bodily assumption of Mary, papal infallibility, indulgences, purgatory, none of those things are included in the stuff that Paul taught. We have Paul's teachings, and none of them are in the early church writings either. This isn't a difference between scripture and tradition. It's an exhortation not to depart from what was already given. And the things that were given are recorded in the New Testament, and I trust the Lord to be sufficient to, make, to keep what we need there. Turn it with me, if you would, to Jude 3. I kind of opened this whole thing this way. Jude, verse 3. And I'll remind you that when the Bible uses the term the faith, it's, it's always being used in a sense um, of uh, the faith as a standalone concept, as a, um, a way of saying the things that we believe, the doctrines we believe. So it's not just your faith or your, your personal belief in those things, but the faith, what Christian doctrine is. Jude 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, our doctrines that we believe, were once and for all, past tense, delivered to the saints. So the things that we believe are already given over and we're to, and we're to fight to hold on to those things. In other words, there's no room for adding new stuff years and years and years later. The exhortation after the gospel went out and, and the apostles went out teaching and preaching and explaining everything is don't leave this. There's no expectation for anything else. It's just don't depart from these things. So the second Thessalonians passage is actually encouragement uh, to hold to what we have in the scriptures as the record of the things that Paul taught. The, uh, the Jude 3 passage says that the faith was once and for all. So it, it's already been done, it's dealt with, and we have it. And then another passage they use, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. <coughs> it's really common for people who have really strange, unbiblical doctrines to take a scripture and quote a, a verse where it's got like a concept that's hard to figure out what, what this means. And then they go, and that's, that's our theology. That, that like, we'll explain what that means with our theology, but they go way beyond the actual statement. So Matthew 23, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And that phrase, Moses' seat, that's gonna, they're going to highlight that verse there, that, those two words. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. And he goes on and on. The Roman Catholic view is this. Moses' seat is not a phrase in the Old Testament. It's a later tradition that developed where they said, we're, we're the scribes and Pharisees, we sit in Moses' seat, and therefore we have Moses' authority, and Jesus endorses their authority, and then they say, therefore, therefore, just like they were told, do what they say, because they sit in Moses' seat, therefore, the Roman Catholic Church is sitting in Peter's seat, and has the authority of the church, and therefore, you should be doing what the Roman Catholic Church says, 
that's that's how they interpret this scripture. Now, on reading it, you would never, like, in your own personal Bible study, read this passage and go, that's exactly what that means. Like, I should become Catholic. Like, you would not do this. The problem here is Moses' seat is being used by Jesus as a reference to simply the fact that these are the people teaching the law. You have to understand, you have a Bible in your lap. The average person back then did not have a Bible in their lap. In order to hear the word of God taught or even read, they had to go to synagogue and they had to listen to the teachers who taught them. So Jesus is like, hey, do what they say as you hear the law, as you hear the word taught, but don't follow what they do. And the do what they say is limited. Don't do what they do. Do what they say, not what they do. Check this out. Jesus is actually instructing people, follow the Mosaic law that you're hearing from these people. That's what he meant, I think, by Moses' seat. They're, they're, they're ones speaking forth the law. But do not follow the traditions they have added to it. That is really interesting. He then specifically rebuts and rebukes their traditions. Matthew 23, that whole chapter, I encourage you to read it. It has eight woes to the Pharisees. The very people that the Roman Catholic Church here is likening themselves to. So if there's a parallel between the Pharisees and the Roman Catholic leadership, then the parallel is, woe to you. Because you've added all these ridiculous traditions. And he tells the people, follow what they teach, like follow the scriptures they teach, but don't follow their extra stuff and their traditions, the commandments of men, not of God. Jesus, throughout his teaching, I mean, we all know his attitude towards the Pharisees. Throughout his teaching, he constantly came against the traditions they added to the Bible. And he was like, just getting back to the scriptures. He'd always be like, haven't you read? Haven't you read? Haven't you read? Haven't you read? And he'd answer issues, not with Rabbi so-and-so taught, or the Pharisees teach this, or the traditions. He like intentionally violated their traditions. He broke their Sabbath laws. He never broke the Sabbath, but he broke their Sabbath laws, their traditions. On purpose. So what is his opinion of them adding man's traditions onto uh, the word of God it seems to be very negative. So if you're going to liken yourself to the Pharisees, then by, by all means, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Because any Bible reading Christian is going to say, how can this be good for Roman Catholic claims? <laughs> so there's a couple scriptures that they try to use to teach that. Um, a third thing, though, is the Catholic Church has to show that they're the only valid source for understanding and interpreting the Bible. Um, the most used and possibly the strongest argument for them saying, you have to look to us to understand this, is this argument. It's not the Bible. This is the most used argument. They say this. How would you know what the Bible is without the Roman church? You wouldn't even have a Bible if it wasn't for us. And therefore, we're the ones who gave you basically the Bible. We're the ones who said, see, these are the scriptures. This is the canon. These are the books that belong. And therefore, you should be looking to us as your continued authority. There's a few problems here. This isn't really how the, how the canon was formed. It's not like one day we didn't have a Bible and the next day we did. And it's not like the Roman Catholic Church had anything to do with it. In fact, the Bishop of Rome at the Council of Nicaea, which is, they'd say that was the council where the Bible was formed, although it's more, much more organic than that. And most of the scriptures were all decided, they were all well known ahead of time. Um, and it was, it was mostly to get rid of some of the books that they knew were not. That was the main reason. But the, but the Bishop of Rome wasn't even really involved. I mean, he wasn't really involved. There's no mention of a pope or anything like that because there was no such thing at the time. So the Roman Catholic Church didn't really exist at the time. And, um, and here's a couple thoughts on this. First off, they'll say, you, you have so many denominations, you Christians, you need to look at us. We're, there's actually over 200 denominations of Catholicism. And most Catholics don't know this, but hopefully they do now. <laughs> There's over 200 denominations of Catholicism, so they haven't fixed this issue of disunity with, with saying this. I mean, in fact, it is the strong issues that, that have caused the divide. It is the issue of fake Roman Catholic authority that has caused splits from the Catholic Church throughout its history. The first great schism, the second great schism, and all this kind of thing. So if the Roman Catholic Church formed the canon, which they did not, then therefore they have the, the authority to tell you what the canon means. But we have to realize recognizing something is not the same as making something. If they recognize the authority of the scriptures, it doesn't, for instance, let's say I wrote to you 27 books. 
And you, upon reading the books, you go, yeah, this is like a book that Mike would write. Like, I know, I know Mike. This is, well, this is totally not Mike's writing. It says something weird that he would never say. And you throw it out and you, and you sift through. Now, because you've recognized my writings, does that mean that you're the authority on what I mean or that people should just read what I wrote? There's, there's no reason to say that, therefore, they're the authority on everything, even if they were there, which they, which they weren't, not officially as the Roman Catholic Church. Recognizing books by a certain author, the the Bible being from God, doesn't give you the authority over them. And um, I think bottom line is, I just don't think God would give us scriptures and then let them get lost and confused. Like, it doesn't make any sense. So I, I think God guaranteed that the right scriptures would stay involved. I think that's the way it is. But let me rebut their idea that they're the source for interpreting the Bible. Um, I can do this several ways. Jesus always said, it's written, it's written, it's written. He always went to the Bible to rebut the, the popular teachings of the day. But turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1. This verse radically, radically destroys any possibility of church authority over the scriptures. Hands down. Hands down. I'm surprised I don't hear it quoted more often. Galatians 1 verse 8 says, But even if we, Paul speaking, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's that word anathema, which means like a curse to hell. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Paul is saying here, like... Here's what I've written you. Here's the gospel. You know the gospel. Here it is. Now I'm going to write Galatians, explain it even better to you. But here's the idea. Even if I come, you judge me by this stuff that I wrote. Even if I show up and knock on your door and say, I have a, a fuller gospel to give you now, you compare what I say to what I wrote earlier because it's the writing and the gospel that has the authority, not the messenger. Now, if Paul did not have the authority to add or change what the scripture said, and the Galatians were called to use the previous revelation of God, like the scriptures, the New Testament, to use this to judge what anybody, including him or an angel, would say, should we not, therefore, be using the Bible to judge the Roman church, to test what they say? Do you notice this, that as you read the New Testament, you never see them writing to church leadership? I mean, there are the pastoral epistles, but that's it. Almost all of the New Testament is written to just Christians. And they're told, hey, read the letter I wrote to so-and-so and read this letter. There's an assumption in there that the church understands the things that God is writing to the church. And the church is us. Not just some select special group of people. It was up to the people to judge other people by the word of God. Not up to the leadership to judge the word of God for the people. No way. If Paul the Apostle doesn't have the authority over the scriptures to tell us what it means and all this kind of thing, then how does the Roman Catholic Church 2,000 years later? I don't think so. So um, let me give you guys a little bit of history. I'll, I'm going to blaze a trail through the past. The origin of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, I want to give us a little survey. What do we mean when we say Roman Catholic Church? Well, the word Catholic actually it technically means universal. That's what it means. And that's why they say the Catholic Church. Sometimes in writings, you'll read the word Catholic Church, and it doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. It means just all Christians, Christendom, you know. But in this case, Roman Catholic Church means that particular religious organization centered in Rome, in Vatican City, which is actually an independent nation, a very small one. It's less than half a square kilometer. It's a very small city, nation. It's independent, though. The population of the Vatican is less than 1,000 people. The physical location where the ruling power of the whole Catholic organization lives and exists and runs the place is in the Vatican, starting with the papacy working its way down. There's bishops all over the place. Under the Pope, there's a group of bishops under his authority, about 5,000 guys, 5,000 bishops. And each of those bishops has authority over a group of priests and parishes. That's what a local Catholic church is. It's actually called a parish. That's the right term for it. And there's about, in the world, about 400,000 Catholic priests. So quite a, quite a few and about 1.2 billion Catholics. They claim that this group started in the Gospels. And it's recorded in two specific pa passages, 
two of the only passages that the Catholic Church has ever bothered to interpret officially, Matthew 16 and John 21. We'll get into those a little bit later. They say Peter was the very first pope with the same authority that the current pope has or claims to have. And that Peter ruled in Rome, 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem. In Rome, Peter was, was, was there ruling and running all of Christendom, making the decisions and running the, running the church. This is important for them to have Peter in Rome because what they'll later say is, while Jesus gave authority to Peter, Peter went to Rome and then the, the authority of running everything stayed in Rome. So whoever was bishop in Rome, that's the guy that had the authority. So you see how they have to tr- have to somehow get Peter into Rome so that they can claim that it's, that's why it's the Roman Catholic Church as opposed to where they thought they had authority in Constantinople or Alexandria, or these various places where they were like, wait a minute, we got our own authority here. And, and I'll talk about that some other time. But um, they do claim to have total authority over every believer and in fact, over the entire world. Now they don't try to exercise authority over the world. There were times where that happened where the Catholic Church ran armies and would send, would, they were more powerful than the government that was the, of the country they were in, and they controlled the government, put kings up and set kings down. And there were times where the kings took popes out and put a new pope in and did this all, all this kind of weird stuff. But they do claim to have authority over all the world. They also claim that whoever was Peter's successor, whoever came as the Bishop of Rome after Peter, gained all of Peter's authority, which they claim is all authority, the authority of Christ on earth. And so on and so on, until they get this unbroken succession of popes, which they say is papal succession, this doctrine that there's this unbroken chain of like each pope kind of handing off to the next pope this sort of authority and the bishops, you know, ordaining them and everything like that. Like we had a pretty smooth transition the last couple popes, which we saw just in recent years. They'd be like, that was pretty much how it's happened from the time of Peter, um, which is not historically true. Um, and they, they claim that this has been the teaching of Jesus and the apostles and the church, this is important, has always known this from the history of Christendom. They've always known there's a pope. They've always known that he has all this power. And they've always known that you've got to come under Rome if you want to come under Jesus. This is what they've always known. There are those two main passages, Matthew 16 and John 21. But before I get into those, um, let me remind you, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the official councils, like Vatican I, Vatican II, Trent, and all the other councils, that they're infallible, like equal with the Bible. This is, this is infallible teaching and infallible doctrine. In Vatican I, they came up with a new teaching. This was like in 18, I think it was 1870, Vatican I happened, this council. Here was the new teaching. Not that this hadn't existed elsewhere in Catholicism, but this was now official. Now it's a council declaration. Peter was made Pope in Matthew 16. Now it's official. Peter is the rock of Matthew 16. Peter's the Bishop of Rome. Peter and nobody else, nobody else has the keys of heaven. And Peter is the chief amongst all the other apostles. The other 11, he is, he's number one. And it all happened in Matthew 16. Um, and they say that this has always been the view of the church. And anybody who disagrees is anathema. Let me read it to you. Now they've given you sort of the overview. I want to read, you, read to you from Vatican I, chapter 1, on the institution of the apostolic primacy in Blessed Peter. We therefore teach and declare that according to the testimony of the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God, remember that word Catholic means universal, was immediately and directly promised and given to Blessed Peter, the apostle, by Christ the Lord. It was immediately and directly promised and given. So Jesus, when he said it, it happened. For, and here's the scripture they'll appeal to, for it was to Simon alone, to whom he'd already said, you shall be called Cephas, John 142, that the Lord, after the confession made by him, saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You remember Peter saying those words? Addressed these solemn words. So it's with these words that Jesus made Peter the first pope. Blessed are you, Simon, of, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound even in heaven, and whatever you release on earth shall be released even in heaven. That's Matthew 16, 
verses 16 through 19. And we'll go there in just a moment. And it was upon Simon alone that Jesus, after his resurrection, bestowed the jurisdiction of chief pastor and ruler over all his fold by these words. So there, this is an official interpretation of a passage. This is extremely rare for Catholicism to do this. Here's the words from John 21. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Translation from the, from the Vatican. Peter is the chief pastor and ruler over all Christians. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. You're in charge of the whole church, Peter. That's the translation. Um, then it talks about people who disagree with this doctrine. At open variance with this clear doctrine of Holy Scripture as it has ever been understood, ever, we've always known this, the whole church has always known this, by the Catholic Church, are the perverse opinions of those who, while they distort the form of government established by Christ the Lord and his church, deny that Peter, in his single person, preferably to all the other apostles, whether taken separately or together, he's, he's more important than all the other eleven put together, was endowed by Christ with a true and proper primacy of jurisdiction, or of those who assert that the same primacy was not bestowed immediately and directly upon blessed Peter himself, but upon the church and through the church on Peter as her minister. So they're saying some people claim that that teaching is not true. If anyone, therefore, shall say that blessed Peter the apostle was not appointed the prince of all the apostles and the visible head of the whole church militant, or that the same directly and immediately received from the same our Lord Jesus Christ a primacy of honor only and not of true and proper jurisdiction, which means ability to actually govern, let him be anathema. If you deny this teaching, or if you deny that Matthew 16 specifically teaches this, you're anathema. And check this out. This is huge. An infallible statement from the church claiming Christianity has always known this. Now you know why they don't usually interpret scriptures. Because they just put their foot in it, to be honest. Nowhere do we see that the church has always known this. Or that this passage has anything to do with Peter becoming like the first pope, effectively. So let's, let's, um, let's test this theory. Is it true that the church has always known that Peter here gets papal authority from Jesus in Matthew 16. Let's read the passage together again. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, that I the Son of Man am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Beautiful Wonderful question to ask people. Who do you say he is? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and you are the first pope, and you have full authority over the entire church of God, and you're the best of the apostles. And you're No, none of this stuff, right? He just says, You're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So is there an authority here? Absolutely, there's an authority. But let's dig a little deeper. Is Peter the rock? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not, actually, and here's the reason why. The biggest reason is this. Look at the context. I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock. Uh, you're Peter, and on this rock. The implication is, Here's you, and then this. If he was speaking of Peter as being the rock, he would have said, you're, Pe you're Peter, and on you, you're the rock. And on you, I will build this church. I will build my church. But he says, on this rock, I will build my church. That's the biggest reason. The context, both before and after, is that this is about Peter's confession of who Jesus is. The confession seems to be the rock. The, the confession laid, the, uh, laid by the apostles of, hey guys, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That seems to be the thing. Both before and after in the passage, it's all about the identity of Jesus. That's the focus of the passage. In the, in the Greek, it's the word, you are Peter, is Petros, which means a rock or a smaller rock. And then on this Petra, I will build my church. That's a different word for rock. Uh, it means like a larger rock, a big, like a ledge, something you could actually build on. Now, these are two different words, and so they actually contradict the idea that you are Petros, and on this Petros I shall build my church. 
It's again, it's not seeming to refer to Peter. Um, but what happens is the Catholic theologian runs to the Aramaic and they go, yeah, but Jesus was speaking in Aramaic. And Matthew wrote it in Aramaic originally, which we don't know to be true, to be honest. We don't, it's just conjecture. And what they'll say is in Aramaic, Jesus would have said, you are, you are Kephas. And on this Kephas, I shall build my church. Here's the problem. Even in Aramaic, there are other ways to say the exact same thing that don't involve having to use Peter's name twice. I mean, Jesus could have been more clear if he wanted to, but it wasn't. Bottom line is, it's at least not clear that Peter is the rock. And he's not later referred to as the rock. The only person referred to as the rock would be Jesus in the scriptures. And that has also been a, a common um, you know, understanding of the passage Matthew Matthew 16. Now, the Roman Catholic Church says... Everybody has known this, except for some perverted people with their perverted teachings. They've all known this. Well, there was a French Roman Catholic, now I'm going to cite a Roman Catholic source, who surveyed early church fathers, or surveyed the church fathers in general. He found, to find out, like, hey, what did they teach about Matthew 16? Has it always been known that this was about Peter? He found 17 of, of them had written citations where they agreed that Matthew 16's phrase, this rock, referred to Peter. 17 of them. Now, they did not, none of them said that Peter was the Pope. They just said that this happened to refer to Peter, the term rock. None of them thought Peter was the Pope. So you have none of them that think that, but 17 of them thought that. There were 16 of them that said the rock was Christ. And there were eight that identified the rock as all of the disciples. And there were 44 that identified the rock as the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So by far the most popular is that Jesus is the rock, the the confession of Christ is the rock. That was the most popular early church belief. I wouldn't call it early church because we're talking all the way to the 800s here from, you know, from after the apostles until the 800s. But the point is 80% of the time they disagree with the Roman Catholic position that according to the Catholic church has always been believed. In other words, we have a provably wrong, infallible statement from a council from Rome on an essential thing about the authority of the church. Now, you might ask at the same time, here's a good question, is like, do the apostles, as you read the book of Acts, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, as you continue reading the epistles, did they consider Peter like the number one apostle? Was Peter looked at like, hey man, you're in charge? And no, not even close. Literally, a few verses after saying this in Matthew 16, Peter's rebuked by Jesus, and he calls him Satan. Like he actually, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go and be crucified. Peter's like, no, no, Lord, don't. And he goes, get behind me, Satan. Now you might say, well, he was only saying that Peter's confession of don't get crucified was Satan. Okay, well, then you can no longer <laughs> claim that Peter was a rock either then. But Peter's rebuked and called Satan in the next few verses. He doesn't, he doesn't suddenly enter into this papacy-type mode. Plus, Later on, much later on, Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke 22, you can read about it, starting in verse 24. And what we read is this. They're on their way to the Garden. Jesus is about to be crucified. It's the night before the crucifixion. And what are the disciples discussing? Which one of them is the greatest? All the way at the end of Christ's physical, earthly ministry, we have the disciples debating which one of them is the greatest. In other words, they did not think Peter was the one. You don't, you don't see like, here's all the bishops gathered together with the Pope, and they're like, so which one of us is the greatest anyways? Hmm, I don't know. I think it's me. No, I think it's that guy over there. No, obviously it's the Pope. That's the theology of the Catholic Church. Also in Matthew 18, Jesus uses, uh, again, later on, uses the same, in the same book even, uses the same terms, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And this time he uses the plural, and he refers to all of the disciples. So is what was given to Peter just for Peter? Now, clearly the thing the keys do, right, binding and loosing, and that's a whole other study, really cool study of that passage. Some of you guys have done it. Um, But that is something that is something for believers in general, not just, um, or at least for the apostles, not just for Peter. So there's no primacy that's there either. Also, in Acts chapter 15, and I'll give you more reasons later, but here's the last one for now. In Acts chapter 15, Peter does not seem to be the one in charge. There's There's the first actual council of the church, And it happens there, and they gather together, and you can read about it in Acts 15. Peter gets up, he talks, but you know who seems to be making the final decision? James. 
Why? I don't know. I don't think James was the Pope. But, I mean, if they somehow thought James had lived in Rome, they'd probably be arguing that James was the first Pope, and the Acts 15 proves it. But there's, there's, it's a, they're sort of committed to Peter having to be in Rome, having to be the first guy, so they dig for the scriptures to prove it. It's just not accurate. And unfortunately, Catholics have been duped into thinking that these things are true because they're, they're raised on the idea that the church has all authority. So what Mother Church says is automatically true, and Mother Church has said it. So Peter doesn't even seem to be in the lead. In fact, Acts 15 has the last words of Peter all the way through the next, you know, uh, what, 14, 13 chapters of Acts. We don't have Peter show up again. If he's the Pope and running everything, then why doesn't why isn't he more preeminent? There's other reasons as well. We'll get into that more later. Um, for the sake of time, I'm going to say we'll pause right now, and I want to deal um, next week with. Well, let's see how much more have I got on this. Yeah, I think I have some more things I need to discuss. I'm going to talk next week. We'll start about the the real history, the actual history of the Roman Catholic Church. Like when did this papacy thing actually start? And, um, and I think it'll really help to see that. Um, there's a reason why when the Catholic Church in Vatican I said, hey, everyone's always known this. Peter was the first pope, and you all know it, and we all know it, that a lot of historians in particular, Catholic historians, left the church because they were like, that's just not true. And they were supporters of the Catholic Church up until that point because it's just, it's just not true. So the church has sort of tied themselves to these provably false claims. And that's where I as a Christian want to go. I want to go to what I can prove, what I can show, um, because it, it's, uh, it's as wrong as the Mormon church claiming that they have authority. Um, why would I believe it? It's not in the Bible. I'm Mike Winger, and next time we will deal with the Pope. It turns out that the doctrine of the papacy is not historical, it's not biblical, it's just not Christian. But don't take my word for it. Hear me out and test my claims for yourself. After all, the goal here is to be biblical and truthful in all things. And until then, don't forget to check the context.